0: Uh, for the rest of us, we are continuing our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, looking at verses 19 through 29. It's printed for you on page 10 in the ESV translation. And then boys and girls, since you're going to be staying with us, you do have your own version on page 11 as well we provided for you. And then if you'd like to turn there in your own Bibles, of course, you're welcome to do that. There's a, a chair Bible there in front of you if you would like to use that. It's found on page 521. And if you don't have your own Bible, please take that Bible as our gift to you. We're glad to let you have that. So as you're turning there, as some of you know, you know, we used to homeschool our children. Uh, We have our oldest is 21 years old and we homeschooled her the whole way through. And one of the things I miss about homeschooling is I miss the science. We used to dissolve stuff, burn stuff, blow stuff up. We uh, We got DNA from a strawberry using regular household chemicals. And it is so easy that it actually made me mad that they didn't discover this molecule until the 1940s. It's like, it's right there. This was so easy to find. We have also uh, just dissected so, so many creatures on our dining room table. So when we invite you over, just keep that in mind. That table has a history. It's okay. We, we, we clean it, sort of. You know, so we got to do all that fun stuff. That's, that's the part where you get to, like, collect all the data, right? That's fun. But then you have to do the unfun part. You have to analyze the data and write up the report. Okay, yuck. And that's sort of where we are in the book of Ecclesiastes right now. We're in the second half of this book. In the first half of this book, he has done all this experimenting. He's tried all these different lifestyle choices what we might call worldviews, ways to live to see if he can solve the emptiness in his heart, to see if he can deal with the frustrations of life. He's tried this and tried this and tried this. He's done the experiment. He's done the fun parts in chapters 1 through 6. And now he's got all this data about how we try to live well in a broken world. And now he's collating it, he's analyzing it, and he's kind of giving us the report. And he begins in chapter seven with his analysis of wisdom and foolishness. He told us that, you know, wisdom doesn't avoid sorrow. Wisdom doesn't avoid hard things, foolishness does. And in in his analysis, he specifically starts talking to the community of faith. the the people in God's graces, those we might call church world. And he notes how our foolishness is very often expressed in us trying to control all the frustrations in life. We do it in church world, we saw last week, by being really religious or by kind of just eschewing and putting aside traditional religious expressions but both of those whether we live with legalism or license really they're both attempts in church world to manipulate God to to get him to give us a good life and so in today's text we're going to get to we're going to wrap up all these thoughts of his analysis so we can then jump into some practical application starting in verse eight so with that in mind let's turn together Ecclesiastes chapter seven verses 19 through 29 Before we read the text, one quick caveat. Ladies in the room, it's a metaphor, and I'll explain it when we get there. Okay, let's look together now. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting in verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found." One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, especially for the times that you give us stuff, a word that's very difficult, and we have to dig in. So we pray, Father, that once again you would send your Spirit, that we might see and know your truth. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning through and perhaps even in spite of the messenger. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So again, he's talking to insiders. He's talking to those in church world. He's wrapping up what religious people do with wisdom and with folly. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. Here's here's where I kind of want to end up and wrap everything around. It's this. Ignoring God's gift of wisdom, we build a cage of foolishness and we lock ourselves in. So God offers us wisdom, We ignore it, we build our own cage of foolishness, and then we jump in and lock the door because we want wisdom strength, but we seek that wisdom instead of seeking God himself, and so we end up enslaved by folly. So we'll jump right in starting here in verse 19 with what doesn't kill you. He starts out right away by saying, why do you want wisdom? What's important about it? Wisdom in the ancient world is not abstract It's tangible, it's practical, it's real strength in life. And to get how important this is, in the Hebrew text it actually starts out here with the wisdom, there's a definite article there referring to that whole passage right before it. Verse 18 especially where he said the God-fearers walk in grace instead of trying to manipulate him. That wisdom is what we want. That wisdom from God is substantial. He says the person who has that wisdom is blessed more than a city with really good political leadership. Apparently, it's very meaningful to them. I don't get the strength of that metaphor myself. Maybe I've never had political leadership that's that inspiring. I don't know. But for for them, it's really good, apparently. See, under the sun, we get frustrated at life. But he says wisdom here gives people gravitas, to use a nice fancy word. Strength, substance to handle life. And part of that strength, he tells us in verse 20, is self-awareness. A wise person knows that they need the strength of verse 19 because they, along with everybody else, are no good, he tells us in verse 20. Back in verse 16, if you remember last week, if you were here, the legalist, the, the religious person, they, he sees himself as wise. But verse 20 reminds us all, nope, you're not wise. We are no good down inside. In fact, he says we get a really good example of what we're really like in verse 21 and 22. Let's look together at verse 21 and 22. It says this, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. He basically says, look, since we know this is how people are, just let people vent. Don't give your heart over to it. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? See, one of the ways we try to control life under the sun is we put our hearts into our reputations, which ends up being a bondage. It it turns from a fear of God to a fear of people because my reputation, what they say and think about me is king. You know, it's not surprising to us today the way our culture is that identity issues have become the psychological, sociological blight on our society, Once you throw out the creator, you also throw out the idea of humans being in his image and without that anchor, it sets us adrift and we're forced to find ourselves in others' definitions of us. And so we pick a tribe and we live for them and we fear not being defined by them, saying the wrong thing, being canceled by our tribe, and so we don't actually have freedom, we put ourselves in bondage to this identity because we're driftless, we have to have something. See, but wisdom says no, you can come and you can rest in God's opinion of you. The one who fears God is free from the fear of people. See, we can't do that without the gospel. Without wisdom's strength, he reminds us right here in this verse, we are way too insecure to let such talk stand. We have to defend ourselves. We have to get back at them. But the wisdom from God helps us to move on when we hear others say bad things about us. It helps us to move on. In verse 22, it helps us to recognize, that, you know what? We all in the same boat, fishing from the same hole. We all do this to each other. See, in the wisdom of the gospel, says that we were so separated from God because of our sin and yet we were loved so much that Jesus Christ made a way to bring us together. To recognize that we're that sinful and yet we're that loved, that grace humbles us. It helps us to know in our heart that we are the living proof of verse 20 and verse 22. We're all messed up and we do it to other people too. Or we can ignore all that. We can ignore God's gift of wisdom, and we can build a cage of foolishness, crawl in, and lock ourselves in. And if we keep doing that, starting in verse 23, it'll have a saying, oops, I did it again. Look at me in verse 23 and 24. He says, all this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? See, like a good church person at this point, he admits, he goes, you know, I know all this. I'm not uneducated. I don't, it's not that I don't get this. He basically says, I know what wisdom looks like. I'm going to get it, but it's elusive. I can't just grasp onto it. I mean, think about that if you know the biblical story of Solomon. I'm talking about Solomon, extraordinarily gifted of God for wisdom, supernaturally gifted of God for wisdom. And he comes in and he says, I can't just grab wisdom. I can't just do wisdom. Boys and girls who are still here, here's how I put it for you if you want to look with Pastor Sean on page 11 there. About halfway down is your 23 and 24. We can look at that together. It says this. It says, I know all this is wise, but I can't live wisely without help. Wisdom is so hard to get. Who can find it? So boys and girls, have you ever gotten in trouble for something just because you really wanted to do the wrong thing? It's okay. Your mom and dad have to. It's not that you didn't know, right? Like, oh, that's wrong. I didn't know I was supposed to do that. You knew. You just wanted to, right? Yeah. That, that's what he says here. Adults are the exact same way. We can't just go get some wisdom. It says under the sun, we cannot just grasp or collect wisdom. So what do we do when we can't just get onto this so we know? But well, what, what we church people do is we default to imperatives, don't we? Commands, work, try, be better, do more, show up. And then after we saturate ourselves in imperatives, we then should all over ourselves, right? I should be more mature. I should be nicer. I should know my Bible better. I should give more. I should, I should, I should. And that's not wisdom. That doesn't, that doesn't make you feel anchored and centered, does it? I remember as a teenager, as my parents started, uh, became Christians and started making us go to church more um, regularly, that the scripture started to resonate with me. I started to intellectually get some things. I started hearing the message, but I was completely missing the grace. I, I missed the wisdom in the context of this passage. So I started trying to be a really good Christian, whatever that means, without actually being born again. I started trying to live a really godly life. I would read my Bible, I would go to youth group stuff, I would serve, I was everywhere. I would work, and I would work, and I would work, and I still didn't have any peace. I wasn't living with any purpose. I didn't have any freedom. I had no assurance that God was actually happy with me in Christ. I was super captain youth group, okay? The youth guy loved to call on Sean to do whatever, because whoever it was, Sean would do it. But I wasn't even a Christian. See, it wasn't wasn't until God's grace changed me that I stopped performing for my life. And instead, I was able to rest in the wisdom of the gospel. That's what Solomon's getting at here. We can't effort our way out because it's not a matter of knowledge. We have an internal problem. And when it comes to living in God's gift of wisdom, we have an internal issue to deal with. Skip down to verse 29 with me. Here's what it says in verse 29. He says, see this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. He goes back to the very beginning. He said, you know what, God made us for himself, but instead of finding ourselves in him, we seek out all sorts of other ways to cope under the sun. In fact, summing up life under the sun here, he says it's all coping mechanisms, what he calls schemes. It's a word that means human inventions. In some contexts, it even means the machinations of war. What a a great definition, right? The machinations of war. Why do we fall into our own machinations here? Why do we try to make our own way? Because he tells us here in verse 29, we are not as we are supposed to be. God made people upright, he says. Pleasing, correct, not crooked. He doesn't say righteous, notice that. He says upright. Because in the Genesis account, Adam and Eve were created innocent, neutral. But what did they do? They sought out their own scheme. Instead of trusting God and abstaining from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when Satan came and tempted them and whispered in their ear, God's withholding from you. God's trying to hold you back. You can't trust him to give you the best. You should go grab it for yourself. They schemed. See, Solomon tells us here, we are the problem under the sun. Instead of resting in the gift of God's wisdom, we scheme We try to do it our own way. And in the rest of this passage, he defines what life without wisdom really looks like. And we'll see that ignoring God's gift of wisdom, we build a cage of foolishness and we lock ourselves in. And to shock us, to show us how incredibly intense this foolishness is, he gives us this image of foolishness as a man-eater starting in verse 25. So he warned us not to take to heart all the junk under the sun, Now, in verse 25, he says, I turned my heart to really understand. He says, I'm gonna dig into this data I've collected in chapters one through six. I'm gonna analyze these schemes. What he defines as there in verse 25, the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. That's a lot of descriptions there. We could even literally translate that, the wicked stupidity and irrational folly. Do you know the Bible has that intensive language in it? It says the wicked stupidity and irrational folly. There's no slide, but boys and girls, if you want to look at your verse 25, here's how we did it for you. We called it the guilt of stupidity and crazy foolishness. I mean, that description is just so extra. Extra. Like You you can taste his revulsion at what's going on here. See, as he remembers his experiment, as he remembers what he lived out, he really wants his audience to get how intensely bad this was. And so what he does, he's, he's gonna dive into his ancient Near Eastern culture and he's gonna give them a picture of folly in a way that they can understand. So in an ancient Near Eastern mind, Wisdom and folly were both palpable, they were real, they were tangible, they're not abstract like you and I think of them. Folly is an actual, measurable, observable pattern of self-destruction and so he personifies that palpable self-destruction in a very well-known metaphor. Okay, so like for us in our culture, just like ships are she, Just like big machines are usually a she, just like we have lady justice as a metaphor in our culture. In the ancient Near Eastern world, they had lady wisdom and they had lady folly. And we see this really clearly in one of Solomon's other books. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. You don't have to turn there. We have it right here for you. Here he is talking about lady wisdom. He says, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? See, he gives this picture of lady wisdom as this person who's standing there crying out, come to me and get wisdom. You who are foolish, come and let me help you. Well-known metaphor. Later on in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 9, we get the other lady, starting in Proverbs 9, 13. He says this, the woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house calling to those who pass by, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is Pleasant that he does not know that the dead are there. So you have these strong metaphors in the ancient Near Eastern culture in the Bible, lady wisdom, lady folly. And it's standing on those metaphors, uh, those well-known metaphors, he then gets to verse 26. Let's look at verse 26 now. He says, I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. And we read that, right, and we freak out. Our non-Christian friends go, there's that misogyny stuff, I knew it. The woke people are like, patriarchy, patriarchy! But the original readers, seeing the clear context of wisdom and folly, were like, oh, he's not talking about women or a woman, he's talking about Lady Folly. Now admittedly, he does not describe her very kindly, does he? He says, folly is more bitter than death. Folly is an enslaver in her very heart. Folly lives to hunt down with her snares and nets and capture God's people. Her very hands are chains to put God's people in bondage. Folly, he says, is a trap, a prison. When we deny God's wisdom, we become her slave. And it's a bitter, bitter captivity is what he's saying in verse 26. See, and if you know anything about Solomon, you have to read his description here with a little bit of irony. After all, this is the man who had um, 300 concubines, supposedly, which by the way, a concubine is not a voluntary position. Okay, no, no, no high school girl went to her guidance counselor like, I wanna be a concubine when I grow up. Okay, no, okay. They may not have been hunted down and put in chains, but once they got there, they weren't leaving. It may have been elegant, but it was still bondage. So Solomon does not have the high moral ground here. Let me be clear on that. But he wants us, even from that lack of having a moral authority, he wants us to see how bitter folly really is. See, God offers wisdom and we scorn wisdom for our schemes. That's folly. A fool is one who ignores God, and so folly is living to ignore the God you know is there. He's talking to those in the community of faith where you know, but you don't do or follow because you don't want to. I mean, think about the various sins and temptations that you deal with on a daily basis, Christians in the room. In the moment of temptation, whatever it is, it's not like you don't know, right? It's never you get to the path and like, well, which one of these is sinful? And which one of these is godly? I mean, there might be some nuanced times in your life maybe, but in general, it's never about, our, about ignorance, is it? It's about desire. Temptation is always fought at the level of desire. It's about our want-tos. And so that's why he tells us in verse 20, verse 21, verse 22, verse 29, we're broken on the inside. We are sinners and so our want-tos are messed up. When we decline God's gracious wisdom and instead try to seek out schemes for doing life, it's because we want this. We don't want that. If you need me to put it in more scholarly terms, Martin Luther said you never break commandments two through 10 without first breaking commandment one. You never steal unless you look at commandment one and say no, God and his ways are not the only God I'm gonna worship. I'm worshiping a different God who will let me steal and so I, break, I deny that commandment and now I deny this commandment because it's always about our want-tos. Lady Folly hunts us down in our want-tos. She puts us in her prison because of our want-tos. All of our schemes to make life work without God, all the stuff Solomon tried those first several chapters don't work, which is where he ends up in verse 28. Look at verse 28 with me. He says, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Again, context matters before you freak out, okay? Remember Solomon's 300 concubines? We get that from 1 Kings 11, where it also tells us he had 700 wives. And in the old math, 700 plus 300 is 1,000, right? So he's talking about his harem, his collection of women here. This verse sums up the the quest he went on. Remember these various worldviews. He dove into pleasure. He dove into sensuality. He dove into materialism. He dove into sloth. And then on the other hand, he also dove into like really getting an intense education, really having some hard, strict discipline, really having a strict moral code. He, He tried all these things. And so he looks at his band of advisors all around him on the one hand, and he looks at his harem and his wives on the other side, and he goes, you know, this side with all the sensuality, all that stuff did me no good. This side might have been a little bit of wisdom there. That's all he's saying in verse 28. Again, he's not saying, man, women stink, men are great, it's not what he's saying. He's looking at his experiment, what he has done. He didn't find any help pursuing sensuality and pleasure. And so even here at the end of this chapter, at the end of his analysis of his experiment, he has no answers. Because ignoring God's gift of wisdom, we we build this cage of foolishness and we lock ourselves in. And so what do we do with this? How do we wrap this up? I have to admit, I told somebody, I said, you know, this is one of those passages that makes you wanna go, the whole expository preaching thing's overrated, let's just skip it. But what do we do with this? Well, we have a hint in the text itself in verse 26 where it tells us that he who pleases God escapes Lady Folly. And how we in church world read that verse is a litmus test. Have we locked ourselves in our cage of foolishness or have we embraced God's gift of wisdom? Because when we hear that, Lady Folly comes and whispers to us, You don't please God, you fail Him all the time. I mean, look. Here's your internet history. Do I need to say anything else? Your Christian life's a hot mess. You should be better. But since you're not, God is never pleased with you. God's wisdom whispers, there was one. A beloved son in whom God was well pleased. He escaped lady folly. And united to him, you can escape too. He fully obeyed God's law, earning God's pleasure for his people. He fully paid for our failures on the cross, ensuring our freedom. And when we place our faith and trust in him, we escape. Oh, dear Christian, do not look to your religious behavior as the basis of God's pleasure over your life. That's madness that's all that crazy harsh language from verse 25 that is insipidly stupid cruel irrational foolishness don't do it look to the life death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus as the basis of God's pleasure in you because when you're united to Jesus by faith what's true of him is true of you and so it's true that in the gospel hear me God loves you as much as you are in Jesus, not as much as you are like Jesus. And as soon as you hear that lady folly whispers into your voice, no, you're not like Jesus. God doesn't love you. So hear it again. God loves you as much as you are in Jesus, not as much as you are like Jesus. Jesus. Those incredible words in the gospel can be said over you, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Because united to Jesus by faith, what's true of him is true of you. Rest in that pleasure of God and escape the folly of this messed up world under the sun. Oh, and For non-Christians here today, this is a tough passage, I know you know, supposed misogyny and hearing God critiquing his own so much and shocking metaphors, but perhaps it helps you see your own heart. If you're tired of all the schemes to be happy, if you're sick of the folly all around you, if you'd like to live actually under your heavenly Father's pleasure, if that sounds amazing, then forget everything you've called religion Cast off everything you think you know about Christianity and place your simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. When you're united to him as the resurrected Lord, you'll have the pleasure of God. You'll have the strength of God's wisdom. Or you can live in your own foolishness. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for hard passages we have to dig in, that you have to uncover a lot to find the truth. So Lord, we pray that what has been said that is good and true and right, that you would cement it into our hearts. And Lord, what is not those things? Help us to forget it immediately. We pray, Lord, that those of us who know you, that you would once again help us cast off Lady Folly and her chains and to actually believe that you are pleased with us through Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, for not believing your gospel, for looking to our own works and religious behavior as as proof of your love instead of looking at the gospel as proof of your love. Would you help us once again, Lord, to rest on Jesus Christ alone? And Lord, we pray for those who are here today who do not know you, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, that he has been portrayed as crucified for sinners and raised for our new life, that you would be true to your promise that where he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. Would you do your work of salvation even now, Lord? And draw people to your kingdom, cause them to confess faith in Christ. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' great name. Amen.